Would you join me, please, in Titus chapter 3? And we'll read those first seven verses in just a moment. For the most part, chapter 2, which we finished last week, gave instructions on how to interact with other believers inside the church. Chapter 3 begins with instructions on how to interact with people outside the church and especially government authorities. And from there, Paul changes direction. He describes the new birth and the new life in Christ. But for anything to be described as new, something must be old. Some of you enjoy restoring cars. Others of you enjoy landscaping or home improvement projects. Do you ever take comparison photos so that you have before and after? You know what I'm talking about. All those design shows have that. All the home improvement shows have that. You see the before and the after. That's how I see this passage today. We have a picture of what we were before we were in Christ and then what we have in Christ. So let's stand, please. I'm going to read these verses. I invite you to follow along, please. This is Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, how great you are. How great is your salvation. And as we consider that this morning, we pray that you would give us understanding. I pray for any here or online who do not know you as Savior, that this would be the day of salvation. I pray for your people, that we would have a greater appreciation, that we would be reminded again of how wonderful your grace and mercy are. Lord, we have a great salvation. We praise you for it. We thank you for it. I pray that we would be excited about it this morning. Excited enough to tell others about it, to speak of it to others. Lord, I ask for the help of your Holy Spirit that during this time together, you would anoint me and fill me, that I would be accurate with your word, that I would speak clearly, and that you, Holy Spirit, would be our teacher, that you would give us ears to hear, and that we would have hearts that are ready to listen and to obey. May we respond to what you show us from your word this morning. May we respond eagerly to do your will. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you. You may be seated. There is so much good stuff in these verses that I had trouble narrowing it down to one key word. But if I had to choose only one, it would be mercy. That this, for, for this passage, I think the overriding theme, the overriding idea is mercy. There's some different ideas in these seven verses as well. So here's how I see the main points of this section. Number one, believers must be good, law-abiding citizens. That's verse one. Number two, believers must be humble. And that's verse two. And number three, humility results from a right understanding of God's grace and mercy. So we need to obey the authorities, we need to be humble, and then we're going to spend the majority of our time on where that humility comes from. How does that attitude come to us? So first main point for today, believers must be good, law-abiding citizens. In some ways, these first two verses of chapter 3 are an extension of Paul's commands in chapter 2. Remember, he was writing this as a letter. There were not chapters and verses when he wrote this down. So in some ways, it fits better with what we've been studying the last couple weeks. There, Paul gave instructions on how to live as a follower of Christ at home, in the workplace, and now in society. Here's the verse. I'll read these first two verses. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. The first thing we see here is the word remind. Remind, it means to intentionally think about something you already know. Bring it back to your mind. And the verb tense says to remind them and to keep on reminding them. Continue to do this, Titus. Remind whom? And it doesn't really tell us. But I believe the them in this verse are the believers who make up the local churches in Crete because Paul left Titus, we know from chapter 1, left him on Crete to minister to the churches, to set the things in order that were lacking in the churches. That's why he's there. So I believe Paul is talking to Titus right here about reminding the believers on Crete to do something. They needed a reminder, and we need a reminder, so what are they supposed to do? To be subject to rulers and authorities? It's actually the third time in this short book that Paul has written about being subject, being in submission to authority. This is a military term. It's following a chain of command. And this time, it's with respect to human government. Here's some parallel verses. Romans 13.1, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Where does government authority come from? It comes from God. Peter also wrote about authority. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king, or we would say emperor, it was the Caesar at that time, whether to the king as supreme, or to governors, or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. What does he say? Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Submit yourselves to government leaders and government laws. Paul and Peter, but here in Back in Titus, Paul is describing the proper attitude toward government officials. Now, several sources, as I was studying this week, said 
Cretans were rebels. They were hostile to authority. Remember how Paul described them back in chapter 1? He said that, quoting their own person, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Not very complimentary. But their attitude was one of rebellion to authority. So now there are believers in these churches and they need to be taught how to respond to government authority. And that's what he's teaching them. The emphasis here is on submitting and obeying. He says to obey. Teach them to obey. And you might be thinking for yourself, great, I haven't killed anyone. I haven't robbed a bank. I pay my taxes. I'm good. Well, I hope that is true of all of you in this room. Might not be, but I think it is. But we could go a lot further with that, couldn't we? In my own life, and probably in most of yours, we could go one particular area and apply this to ourselves. How are you doing with traffic laws? Specifically, how are you doing with the speed limit? <laughs> this is a test of us, isn't it? But, but what does it say here? That we are supposed to obey. We are supposed to learn to obey the government authorities. And who put the government authorities in place? God. Now, Are there ever times we should not obey our government? And the answer is yes. We've talked about this before. But only when doing so would cause us to disobey God. Now, can you think of anyone, Old Testament or New Testament, can you think of anyone in the Bible who disobeyed the authority of that time? I see a hand over here already. Yes. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Exactly. In the book of Daniel... The king of the time said, everyone must bow down to my statue. When you hear the music, bow down and worship him, is what was going on. And did they do it? They did not. Why not? Because to do so, to obey that government authority at that point would be to disobey the higher authority of God. Very good. There are others we could talk about. Any others that come to mind? The Hebrew midwives. Lord willing, when we get past Easter, we're going to start a series in Exodus, and we're going to get to them right off the bat, the Hebrew midwives who refused to obey Pharaoh's order to kill those babies. Very good. There are others we could talk about. But I'm going to bring us to one in Acts, Acts chapter 5. You can turn there if you want to. I'll have the verses on the screen for you. But Acts 5, the apostles are set before the local authorities. In this case, they were religious authorities, but they were the local authorities law, so to speak, as well. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 27 of chapter 5. And when they had brought them, this is the council, the religious leaders, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, who? The apostles, specifically Peter and John here, are the ones who usually are speaking for the group, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? What name? Jesus. And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, your doctrine, and intend to bring this man, Jesus, blood on us? You're telling everybody we killed him. Well, they're saying that because they did. But the emphasis isn't on who killed Jesus. It's that he died. He died as the Savior. And he came back to life. That's what they were emphasizing. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. That's our principle. If we are commanded to do something that is against God's law, we have to obey God. 
And, and of course, we're cheering inside for their courage. But we also have to remember that obeying God when it is against the law of the land brings consequences. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Skipping down to verse 40. I'm going to pick up partway through verse 40. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, there's their consequence, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So, check this out. They departed from the presence of the council rejoicing. They were rejoicing. Why? That they were counted worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So are there ever times we should not obey our government? Yes. But only when doing so would cause us to disobey God. Will there likely be consequences when we do? Yes, there will. And we need to prepare ourselves mentally and emotionally and spiritually through prayer. Because if it becomes illegal at some point in our country to read the Bible or to pray, or to share the gospel, or to call sin, sin in public. We need to be ready to obey God and, when necessary, endure the consequences. Paul continues here. What else are they supposed to learn to do? To be ready for every good work. This obedience he's talking about that he just mentioned, to teach them to obey, it's not just passive obedience, it is proactive. It is eager obedience. Um, sort of like, this isn't a perfect illustration, but community service, that you are going to be actively involved supporting people around you, your friends, your neighbors. Take it to that level. Your neighbor needs help fixing something or, or carrying something. You're going to help out. You're going to be a good citizen in that way. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all especially to those who are of the household of faith. But do good to all. So those are positive. Let, let's switch back over. To speak evil of no one. That means no slander. No gossip. No backbiting. Now I'm going to apply this two ways. One, to believers in the church. That's not the immediate application there, but I think it does apply. God has set up a, pro, a, a process for confronting sin within the church. And you can read about it on your own. Matthew 18, Galatians 6, those are the passages. God's process is not to tell other people about sin that you see, that you find, that you hear. Don't tell other people about the situation or, or even come tell me. Instead, go to the sinning person in private and when necessary, involve as few people as possible after that. That's how it works in the church. You're not supposed to be talking against other people. You're not supposed to be talking about other people in a negative way. That's called gossip. It's a sin. But let's come back to the immediate context of this verse. I found this convicting this week too. Do we speak evil of government authorities? Do we gossip about them? Do we slander them in our conversation or on our social media? we need to be careful on this it's an election year there's going to be lots that we're going to hear about this candidate and that elected official timothy tells us we're supposed to pray for these individuals and we tend to make fun of or tear down the ones that we disagree with 
But he's saying, this is what a believer does. This is God's design for the church. This is how we're supposed to be different. So be careful how you speak about others, but also be careful how you act toward others. This brings us to our second point. Believers must be humble. And there are three words here that go together, peaceable, gentle, and humble. So the first one, to be peaceable, not striving, not fighting, not quarrelsome. You're not going to get into a fist fight. You're not going to get into a verbal fight. James 4.1 asks a question and then answers it. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Proverbs addresses the same issue. By pride comes nothing but strife. So if we find ourselves in verbal fights or in physical fights on a regular basis, or adults, the source is my pride. It is my wrong desires. He goes on. To be gentle. That word means considerate. It means fair. I liked another definition I found. It combines the ideas of dignity and reasonableness. The next one, to be showing all humility. This is meekness. This is gentleness. Someone else described it as humble courtesy demonstrated by my kind responses. Humble courtesy demonstrated by my kindness to others. Now, another question for you that you can respond to. Whom do you think of in the Bible when I say meek? Moses? Anyone else? Jesus, thank you. Moses and Jesus were the first ones I thought of. Numbers 12.3 says, Now the man Moses was very humble. Same word when it's translated into Greek as we have here in this verse. More than all the men who were on the face of the earth. The meekest person living at the time was Moses. Skip ahead centuries to Matthew 11. Jesus, the only time he describes himself in the Gospels. The only record that we have of that, he uses this same word. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, here it is, gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus described himself as meek, as gentle. As a matter of fact, it's in the Sermon on the Mount too. Blessed are the meek. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. Years ago, I heard a Bible teacher say, meekness is not weakness, it is power under control. So this is a specific application of the self-control we've been talking about in earlier passages in Titus. This is a specific area in which we can exercise self-control and need to. Do you always have to be right? Do you always have to have your own way? Do you consider others better than yourself, or do you consider yourself better than others? Those are questions you can ask to determine whether you are meek. Do you have your power under control? How would you know? You could ask yourself those questions I just asked, but you could also ask others around you, your spouse, a family member. Do you think of me as humble and meek? Do you think of me as prideful? Because the Holy Spirit's going to grow the fruits of peace and gentleness in our lives. That's 
part of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are these sounding familiar? We need to submit to God's wisdom as well. Because James wrote to us that the wisdom that is from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. If this is an area of struggle for you, then please stay with me. Please pay attention. We're going to talk about where this attitude of gentleness, this attitude of humility, this attitude of meekness comes from, the source of it, if you will. And to whom are we supposed to show all humility? We're supposed to show it to all men. And that's the same idea as we had back in chapter 2, verse 11. It means all types of people. And now we're getting to the section that I'm calling before and after. The theme of the book of Titus is truth leads to godliness by grace. And as we said last time, salvation by grace brings change to our lives. If you're a follower of Christ, your life is not perfect. You're not going to be sinlessly perfect in this life. That's not going to happen. But there should be progress. There should be change taking place in your life over time as you become more like Jesus. So let's see what kind of change Paul describes here. This is our third point for today, and this is going to be the remainder of the verses, verses 3 through 7. Humility results from a right understanding of God's grace and mercy. Verse 3 says this, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. So starting off with that word for, Paul is giving us the reason that we should be gentle and humble toward all kinds of people. That's what he had just said. Because we were like them before we were saved. He says, for we ourselves also once. So Paul, who elsewhere described himself as the chief of sinners, is including himself in this description. When he says we and he's writing to Titus, then he's also including Titus. So Paul and Titus and all of us, we ourselves also once, what's the next word? Were. We ourselves were. That's past tense. I won't read their surrounding verses, though I love them, but 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gives a list of sins. And if you look at the context, you'll find a sin you've committed, I I promise. Long list of sins. But then he says in verse 11, and such were, past tense, such were some of you. What else happened in the past? You were washed. You were sanctified, set apart. You were justified, declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All right, so we're talking about what we were, what we were before. He starts into his list. Foolish. Senseless. Unwise. Disobedient, which means what we think it means, but... It's an attitude more than anything else. It's an unwillingness to be persuaded. It's being obstinate. It's choosing not to believe. Do you remember Thomas? We actually used this last year for Resurrection Sunday. We looked at the story of Thomas, and we know him 
most frequently as doubting Thomas because he refused to believe. When Jesus showed up the second time and said, go ahead, check out my hands, check out my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. That's what's described by disobedient here. Before Christ, before we called on him for salvation, we were disobedient to the gospel. Some of us, we knew the truth, but we were going to reject the truth. No, I know better. No, I'm not ready for that. No, I don't want to change my life. Some of us were also deceived. I feel like all of us were either disobedient or deceived or both before Christ. And deceived here is blind to the truth. How? By our own sin and by Satan's lies. He is a liar and the father of lies. How else does he describe us before Christ? That we are serving or enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. See, the world's philosophy is do what you want, when you want, any way you want, with anyone you want. And that's how they would see freedom, liberty. Cast off all restraints. If it feels good, do it. But what I just described, according to the Bible, is actually slavery. Second Peter 2.19. While they, and he's talking about false teachers, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves to corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. You say, that's a lot of words, Bob. Okay, how about this? What you don't control controls you. Or what you won't control controls you. And I'm not just talking about be tough, exercise self-control. I'm, this is all dependent on God's grace. Those of you who were here last week heard me say that a lot. This is all because of God's grace, his help, his enablement, his empowerment. That, that was the theme last week. It doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to be enslaved to these desires. The solution can be found, and it's found starting in the next verse. We'll get there in just a minute. But he has another couple of descriptions, living in malice and envy. I liked this definition I found. Malice is wishing bad things would happen to people. Envy is wishing good things hadn't happened to people. So here's a paraphrase of this phrase. You felt at home being vicious and jealous. That's how we were. He's not finished yet. Hateful and hating one another. The Amplified Bible says, hateful, hated, detestable, and hating one another. Sounds like the world around us, doesn't it? This person hates that person. This group hates that group. That's what we were before Christ. And this description, this picture he's painting is not very complimentary of us, is it? But verse 4 is the turning point. The appearance of the love of God, our Savior. We don't have to live in verse 3. We've been delivered from that. 
in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So our before photo can be drastically different from our after photo, and it should be. What is the first word of verse 4 in your Bible? But, B-U-T. That little word of contrast means everything. It changes the trajectory of this passage. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared. There's some very important concepts in these verses, starting here in verse 4. With kindness and love and continuing with mercy in verse 5. And when we get to verse 7, we have grace and hope. Very important concepts, and, and we'll talk about them as we go. Some Bible scholars believe that this section, verses 4 through 7, was part of a hymn text sung by the early church. It is certainly good for us to learn, to meditate on, to think about it. It would be great for us to memorize these verses. Before I started this series in Titus, the one verse I know I could have quoted was Titus 3.5. That's coming up in just a minute. So what does he say here? He says, when the kindness of God appeared. What is kindness? Kindness is God's moral goodness. He is good. Jesus, when he was questioned by a a Pharisee, said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. God is good. You learned a little chorus as as a child. God is so good. He is. That's who he is. The kindness and love. Literally, it's Love for man. That's where we get our word philanthropy. Benevolence, loving kindness. When the kindness and love, that type of goodness, that type of benevolence of God appeared. We learned last week, chapter 2, verse 11, that the grace of God that brings salvation appeared to all men. And what did that describe? That described the incarnation. When Jesus came and he was born as a baby, the first coming of Jesus to save us, That's when this love and kindness appeared in that way, the first coming of Christ. Continuing in verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. We've gotten to the main verb of this long sentence. This is at least the second really long, what we would call a run-on sentence in English that Paul has in the book of Titus. So from verse 3 to verse 7 is all one sentence. But here's the main verb. Here's the main clause. He saved us. He saved us. He provided for us to have eternal life with him. Saved is the main verb of this long sentence. And if you mark in your Bible, I would suggest that you highlight or circle or underline. He saved us. How did he save us? Why did he save us? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to what? His mercy, he saved us. There is absolutely no other reason for him to save us. It is by his mercy, and it is only by his mercy. I don't think I can overemphasize that or say that too many times this morning. Why should God let you into heaven? How would you answer that question? I'm a good person. No, no, not according to God's standards, you're not. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, I think my good deeds are going to outweigh my bad. Lots of people think that. 
But that's not how God judges. Your eternity is not based on keeping track, keeping your totals in alignment that, oh, I need to do more good works this week because I did something bad again. That's not how it works. God says our good deeds, the best we can offer, are like garbage. They're like filthy rags. You say, well, I've done a lot of good works. I'm a good person. I'm a kind person. I've served others. Or maybe I've been baptized. I've joined a church. I've given to a church. Those are all good works. But they don't save. We talked about that last week, and it is spelled out very clearly in this verse. So we could not earn salvation. We didn't deserve salvation. We can never deserve it. But by his mercy, he saved us anyway. How? Through the washing of regeneration, or your translation might say rebirth, and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now, those are some big words too. Regeneration and renewal means new life, that's regeneration, and transformational growth, that you're changing and growing. That's what the renewal part means. Both of which come to us only by the work of the Holy Spirit. There's a parallel passage to this in Ephesians. It's Ephesians 5.26. That he might sanctify and cleanse her, talking about the church. How? With the washing, same word, of water by the word. This is frequent, repeated spiritual cleansing. Frequent, repeated spiritual cleansing. Most of us take a shower or a bath every day. Some of us take more than one. And that's the kind of frequency that's required here. What's more, it's thorough. It's like telling a child to wash behind your ears and clean between your toes. It's a thorough cleansing. And one more time, how does it happen? It happens by the work of the Holy Spirit. As we submit to him and walk in his ways. That's here in Titus 3. And by the work of the word of God in our lives. That's the Ephesians passage, Ephesians 5. The washing of the water of the word. The Holy Spirit gives us spiritual life and then constantly renews that life as as we submit to him and walk with him. Aren't you glad we're not stuck back in verse 3 the way we were? This is what he's doing in our life. We have to have him. We need him to show up every day. Because left to myself, I'm going to be looking back like verse 3 again. Uh, That's that's my tendency. That's my default. Verse 6. Still talking about the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So God the Father poured out the Holy Spirit on us abundantly or generously. This happened at salvation. God poured out his Holy Spirit on us and he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And I've been pointing out some references to the Trinity as we've gone through this book of Titus. Here's another one. The Father in verse 4, the Holy Spirit in verse 5, Jesus Christ in verse 6. What that tells me is that the entire Godhead joins forces, combines to bring about our salvation. Our one true God, existing in three persons, has saved us. Verse 7. So that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
It's an amazing statement. Having been justified, that means declared righteous, by His grace. We talked a lot about grace last week. Imagine for a moment that you're the defendant in a courtroom. And the charges brought against you are as follows. See if they sound familiar. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating. And the prosecuting attorney, in this illustration that would have to be Satan, brings all of the evidence against you. And you know you're going to be found guilty. And so does everybody else. In fact, you deserve the death penalty. And that's what you're expecting to hear. That's what you're expecting to get. But the God of the universe, who is the judge, reads your verdict. And just as you're waiting to hear guilty, instead you hear not guilty. But I know I'm guilty. Yes, you're guilty. And the judge of all says, not guilty. Your lawyer, Jesus Christ, his son, secured your pardon by taking your penalty of execution on himself. He died in your place. He took your penalty. And God the Father, based on his action, has declared you not guilty. That's justification. As an elementary school teacher, I learned that justification is God's forgiving me and treating me just as if I had never sinned. Here's some verses of that, Psalm 103. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sin, our transgressions from us. So as far as the east is from the west, that's a long way, folks. Micah 7.19, he will again have compassion, love in action for us. And will subdue, suppress, hold down our iniquities. I love this. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea, the lowest part of the sea. Corey Ten Boom said, when we confess our sins, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever, and then places a sign. And what does it say? It says, no fishing allowed. How can that be? How can he do that? Jeremiah 31 gives us a clue. I will forgive their iniquity, another word for sin, and their sin I will remember no more. Hebrews 8 says almost the same thing. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Two chapters later, Hebrews 10 says, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now I know what some of you are thinking. If God knows everything, and he does, how can he forget anything? Well, the answer is he didn't, because that's not what I said. That's not what these passages say. They don't say he forgot your sin. They say he chose not to remember your sin. That's what's going on. He doesn't forget anything, but he chooses not to hold them against us. He chooses not to bring them up to us again. And there's an application for us in that as well. If someone has sinned against you greatly, you may never be able to forget that. It's like a scar. It it may be with you for the rest of your life. But, by God's grace, with his help, you can choose not to replay it over and over in your mind. 
You can choose not to think about it by his help. You can choose not to tell others about it by his help. You can choose to forgive. You can choose not to remember. Now there's one more thing I want to point out to you about justification and what it gives us. Justification gives me present encouragement and future hope. Present encouragement and future hope. I am, number one, saved from God's wrath against sin. Declared righteous is what we just said. And two, I have eternal life as God's adopted child and heir. That's good news. Y'all don't look like it's good news, but it's good news. He says, heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Last week we talked about looking for that blessed hope. This is the same word for hope. The idea is similar, that Jesus is coming back and we get to spend eternity with him. We also saw that we were redeemed. We were bought out of the slavery of sin. But that was just the start. It's not just that he released us from the slavery of sin. He adopted us. We have an inheritance in him. We have so much in him. He has done so much. He has given us so much. So he went much further than just rescuing us from sin. That would have been enough. But he adopted us into his family. Wrote us into his will. Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. Why? That we might have the adoption as sons. Now let's, let's wrap this up. Let's try to tie this together. The first thing we saw was that believers must be law-abiding citizens. There should be a difference when you compare us to the world around us. One difference is that believers must be humble. But how do I do that? Where do I get that? I remember where I came from. There but by the grace of God go I. And I remember what God has done for me, what I have in Christ. David Guzik said that remembering this work of God, his mercy, his grace, his renewal, this builds up four things in us. First, gratitude that God has changed us. But second, humility when we see that his work changed us. It wasn't that I was so special or did it right. Third, it should result in kindness to others who are in the same position, in the same place. And finally, faith that God can change those who are still in that place because he changed you and he changed me. I know there are a lot of big words in this passage and I've tried to explain them. But I realize that some of this may be unfamiliar to you. But the hope here is that we can have eternal life. We can spend eternity with God because of what Jesus Christ has done in coming, living a perfect, sinless life, 
dying in my place and in your place and rising again for our justification. And if you've never called on him to save you today, you can do that. You can do that sitting right where you are right now. You can say, God, save me. I know I have broken your laws. But I believe that Jesus is the only one who can rescue me. And I'm choosing to believe in him. And he will rescue you. In that instant, he will rescue you. And all these blessings we've been talking about are yours. Believers, are you obeying government authorities? Are you speaking out against them? Are you humble and meek? And do you continue to be amazed by God's mercy and his grace? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Before we go on, I want to be quiet for a matter of seconds to give you a chance to pray and to think about what we've been talking about. How does God want you to respond to what you've heard this morning, what you've read in his word? Is the Holy Spirit convicting you of a specific sin that you need to repent of, that you need to confess and turn from? If so, do it. He is faithful and he is righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is there something he's leading you to do, a conversation he's leading you to have? Obey. If there's a specific need, a burden on your heart, you want to hear more about what it means to have eternal life because of Jesus, please talk to one of us. Don't leave here with questions like that in your mind. Our Father, we are grateful for your mercy. We thank you that we have hope of eternal life in you. We thank you that you did not leave us as we were. We thank you that in Christ, by your grace, the after is very different from the before. But Lord, give us compassion for those around us, our friends, our neighbors, our classmates, our co-workers, people in our community. Give us compassion for leaders in our government that we would faithfully pray for them, that we would love and minister and serve those around us and share your love with them. Lord, change us. We cannot save ourselves. It is only by your grace, your kindness, your love. We cannot make ourselves spiritual. We cannot make ourselves a good person. That too is only by your grace, only by your Holy Spirit renewing us only by your word renewing us. Lord, if that's going to happen, we need to be submitted to your Holy Spirit. We need to be reading your word. We need to be humbly seeking your help in prayer. Forgive us where we fail in these areas. Give us grace to obey. 
Give us hearts that are ready to change, that desire to be different from the world around us in the ways that you require, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.